Anton Chekhov may be a name that some of you know. He was a 19th century uh, playwright, uh, a writer of short, uh, short stories, fiction. And he wrote a story called The Lament. It was a story about a horse and buggy driver uh, who was grieving the loss of his son. As the story opens, there, uh, he, uh, he is uh, hailed by a passenger who wants to get to the other side of town. And as he gets on, gets into the, the, the carriage, uh, the driver thinks, this is an opportunity for me to, to, to try and share a little bit of my story and, and have someone to uh, share my grief as I share this, uh, this trip across town. And so he begins to, to speak to him. My son, my son, let me tell you about my son. Unfortunately, the passenger is uh, too busy to hear about his son, and he would prefer to uh, pass the trip uh, in silence and asks him not to, uh, not to continue. And the passenger gets off, and another passenger gets on, asks to uh, go to a different part of town, and... Again, he sees this as his opportunity. Filled with grief, he begins again, my son, my son, let me tell you about my son. And this passenger is actually uh, not just uh, too busy to, to listen and preferring to, to carry the rest of the trip in silence. He says, hurry up, if, we're, if, you, don't, uh, if you don't pick up the pace, I'm, we're, we're, we're going to be here all night. Uh, and clearly just has no time for him. And this story continues like that. Passenger after passenger gets on, and each one is either too busy, uh, too self-absorbed, uh, or too uh, burdened with their own needs to listen to uh, this man in his grief about his son. Finally, he comes to the end of his shift, he gets, uh, come, comes home, uh, puts the horse in the stable, and as he is brushing uh, the, the, uh, the, the mane of the horse, he begins, my son, my son, let me tell you about my son. And the only one that this, this buggy driver is able to unburden his grief with uh, is his horse, which is little consolation for him, but for Anton Chekhov is, is uh, a picture for many of uh, the world we live in and how often it can be a cold place, a place where people with real burdens about real problems often find themselves feeling completely alone. Many people enter into the Christmas season feeling a little bit like the horse and buggy driver in Anton Chekhov's short story. Feeling a sense that they're carrying grief and carrying it alone. Uh, carrying pain or burdens and, again, uh, carrying them alone. Longing for comfort, they wonder if there's anyone who cares. Uh, today we're in a series, uh, we begin a series where we'll uh, we'll carry through the month of December uh, called Christmas Hope. And we're, we're looking at a precious Christmas passage, but it's not a classic Christmas passage. There are no donkeys, there are no angels, 
Uh, we won't see any wise men. Uh, and yet it is a, a precious passage that speaks to the hope of Christmas. Today's passage in particular ministers comfort to those uh, who are in need. And it's a, really a call to hope again. It's a call to someone like uh, the buggy driver in Anton Chekhov's story who may have given up hope and had begun to settle for his horse. Uh, it is a call that there is a God of great comfort who invites us to hope in him. We'll be walking, uh, walking through this uh, passage, and uh, uh, we'll, just, we'll just scratch the surface in the opening uh, verses this morning. But I want to encourage you that if, uh, if you are approaching the holidays with uh, a sense of need, a sense of longing for that comfort, then this passage is for you. Uh, and if you are approaching the holidays feeling a little bit more upbeat and uh, uh, feeling that sense of, of excitement, then this passage for me is a, 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 a picture of how God ministers to those in need and how God might seek to use us in bringing comfort to a world that desperately needs it. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn with me uh, to Isaiah chapter 40. And I'm going to read from verses 1 to 8. Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 8. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All, fresh, all flesh is like grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people, people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of God. And the first thing I learned from this passage is to hope in the God who seeks our comfort. I think sometimes we can feel like God is a little bit like those passengers that uh, were kept getting on to, into the carriage in Anton Chekhov's story. We feel like God's not interested. We wonder if he cares. We wonder where he is when we are going through all that we're going through. And God's word here invites us to hope. It assures us that there is a God who longs to bring comfort into our lives. Now, if you're a fan of Handel's Messiah, you will recognize the opening verses. Maybe not in a newer, maybe, maybe I should have said, comfort, comfort ye, my people. Uh, but those are uh, familiar words from Handel's Messiah. The words of comfort here are for the people of God 
in exile in Babylon. And what's been, what's been happening in the book of Isaiah, for the first 39 chapters, God has been going to great lengths to explain why and how uh, Israel ended up in exile in Assyria, and then why and how Judah then would fall and end up in exile in Babylon. And seemingly to make sense of what would inevitably be terribly tragic, incredibly painful to, uh, to God's people as they faced that discipline, as they endured the consequences of sin, when we move from chapter 39 to chapter 40, we are sent ahead uh, to now the end of the exile and God proclaiming that there is hope coming and that there is comfort uh, for God's people. The people he addresses have grown disillusioned. They have had, having come through this time of exile, having, having been conquered as a people, having been taken from their land, they don't feel that sense of closeness to God anymore. They wonder if God cares. We wonder if God has abandoned them as a people. Uh, they wonder if there's any hope for relationship anymore. God arrives proclaiming comfort for those who feel that they have no comforter. He calls them, interestingly, my people. And even those words would have been tender and precious to, to the people because they didn't feel like God saw them as his people anymore. They didn't feel like God cared anymore. In verse 2, he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And those words, those words get repeated several times in the Old Testament, but usually the context is in when, when a, a man is trying to, to win over a woman, these are the words that, gets, that, gets, that get applied to Boaz when he spoke to Ruth. They're, get, they're, they're words of tenderness. They're words of uh, uh, someone seeking to, to win, over, uh, win over someone in, in love. And so the, when, when God is described to and, and he, this call to speak tenderly to Jerusalem, it, it is with the sense that God is trying to woo, uh, woo his people, to persuade them that uh, he has great love for them and great plans for them. It's important that you see the substance of God's comfort because it's explained in the second half of verse 2. He says, Cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's, announce, it's an announcement that Israel's exile is over, and that's, that's good news for the people. But you might read the rest of the verse and figure that her iniquity or sin has been, has been pardoned because she's had enough punishment for now. In fact, you might read that and think, oh, Israel was was judged twice as hard as they ought to have been. They've been given double the punishment, and so now the extra exile is going to come to pass. Some people take that position. I think it's unlikely for a couple of reasons. First of all, you don't pardon sins that have already been paid for, and in Scripture, God never gives us double what we deserve for our sins. He is always 
doubly gracious. I think what Israel has received from the Lord's hand isn't double punishment, it is double pardon. It's a statement of the extravagance of God's grace and generosity here. Uh, Later in Isaiah, it says, Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. It's a statement that God meets us. Yes, there are consequences for our sin, but when we come to him in repentance, when we come with a desire to turn from our sins, we don't find God meeting us with double punishment. We see God meeting us with double pardon. And some people think, even some Christians think, they hear the Christian message and they assume that what God is doing is just wiping the slate clean. He's just going to forgive us for what we have done. But it's like we've just gotten out of the penalty box. We're still kind of nowhere with God. We're kind of in a, in a neutral standing with God. That would be a pardon. That, when you pardon someone on death row, that's typically what happens. Okay, we're not going to, to send you, we're not going to give you the death sentence. We're pardoning you for your crime, but you're still viewed with suspicion. You're still seen as someone who should have gotten it worse, but we kind of let you off. That, that would be a pardon. What God provides us, though, is a double pardon. God doesn't just forgive our sins when we come to him in repentance. We receive the righteousness of God. God calls us saints. He treats us as if we are holy because we receive the righteousness of another, the righteousness of a Savior. Anton Chekhov's buggy driver couldn't find comfort anywhere. He couldn't find a comforter anywhere. And so the story ends with him unburdening himself to a horse who can't speak and who really isn't listening. Christmas tells the story of a God who seeks our comfort. Tells the story of a God who meets us and who responds to our sins with extravagant grace, with a double helping of the grace that we need. We're invited to hope in the God who seeks our comfort. And so that's where the passage really begins, with that statement of great hope in God's comfort. But having proclaimed that hope, we're called to prepare. We're we're shown how to prepare for the God who, who secures our comfort. Verse 3 pictures a strange scene for me. It's a picture of God preparing to visit the earth. But you'd think if God was going to go to all the trouble to make this uh, one-time visit to, uh, to dwell among his creation, you'd think that maybe he'd start with the pyramids in Egypt. You'd think that maybe he'd go to Petra and Jordan, or at least the temple in Jerusalem. But instead, it pictures God arriving in the wilderness. I've heard a lot of vacation stories, but none from anyone who deliberately went to spend their vacation in the desert. In Scripture, the wilderness is a picture of barrenness. 
It was a place where Adam and Eve went when they were driven from the garden. They were, they were sent out of abundance and they went into the wilderness. It's a picture of all that is dry and desolate and barren in our world. And here the scripture declares that's exactly where God goes to meet with us. When we find ourselves in the wilderness of this world, the message is that God would cross the Sahara to to meet with us there, to come to us in our need. But he wants us to welcome him. He wants us to prepare for him. When, ancient, ancient, uh, when, when kings traveled in the ancient east, often they would send ahead envoys who would visit the, the town or the, the place of people where, they, where, where the king was going to arrive, and that envoy would be uh, a messenger telling them to prepare. And depending on the king, depending on the town, depending on the circumstances and the time, there would be various uh, preparations uh, that, would, that would be put underway to, what well, we, we would say today, roll out the red carpet, right? Even, even when you hear guests are coming over, uh, you might get out a vacuum cleaner. You might start dusting. Uh, if you had an, enough notice and it was an important enough guest, you might, you might repair that, uh, that floorboard on the, on, the, on the porch, or you might buy a new welcome mat. You might make various preparations for the arrival of this guest. Here, the preparations are more drastic than that. They're more extensive. There's a call for a highway to cut through the desert. If there are valleys, they're to be filled in. If there are mountains, they're to be leveled. Everything is to be smooth to prepare because this one who is coming is not an ordinary guest. It is God himself coming in glory. In preparation for the ministry of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist famously quoted these words here from the prophet Isaiah. In John 1.23, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet said, as the prophet Isaiah said. John the Baptist said, that person that you heard about, you, that, that herald that was going to announce the arrival of God coming to bring comfort to his people, he said, that's what I'm doing right now. I, I am preparing the way. But interestingly, John the Baptist didn't call for any public works projects. He didn't initiate any, any paving construction. He didn't build any roads. And he didn't tell people to build roads. Instead, he said, this God who is coming doesn't deserve just some new roads and, and, and a little bit more uh, paving to, uh, uh, for, uh, for, for him to visit us. He calls us to prepare in our hearts. He calls us to repentance. And, and, and we see in John the Baptist this understanding that, that the way that we prepare for God's arrival in our hearts is through Repentance. Dealing with the obstacles in our heart that would otherwise keep us from the fellowship that he wants to enjoy with. Confronting the, the mountains of, uh, of resistance in our own hearts. Dealing with the valleys of, uh, of, of sin that would get in the way of us giving God 
the welcome that he deserves. And so it's that call to, to repentance. And, and, and as John the Baptist came, they, he was called John the Baptist because people streamed forward. They repented of their sins. And as a sign of that, they were baptized. Verse 5 promises that the highways are in preparation for God's visitation on his, on, on his people. And they're assured that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Those words were fulfilled at the first Christmas when God took on human flesh and people saw in Jesus Christ the very glory of God. John says of him that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ came and spoke words of life. He spoke and he said things that no one had ever said before. He was the one who fed the hungry, who healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. And for a moment in history, people beheld him and they caught a glimpse of the glory of God. They enjoyed the fulfillment of this ancient promise from Isaiah that God would visit his people. And so it was a wonderful fulfillment of uh, these verses from Isaiah. But in, a, in another sense, it wasn't an, a fulfillment. In one sense, it was an inadequate fulfillment of these verses from, from Isaiah. Because Isaiah's promise speaks of an even, even greater day. If you look at, at, at the verse, it says, all flesh, referring to all people, will uh, see the glory of the Lord. Jesus promised, when, he, when, when Jesus himself came, he promised another day. He spoke of another day when what Isaiah promised would actually come true. When not just a few people in the Middle East at a certain point in history would see him as they did when Jesus came at Christmas, that first visitation. But he promised that he would come again in greater glory. And that when he, when he came again, there would be uh, not just a, a, a local visitation of God with his people, but there would be a worldwide demonstration of his glory. Christmas is a rehearsal then for Jesus' next arrival. At Christmas, we pause to say, God has promised to visit his people, and he has asked us to prepare. He has asked us to prepare through repentance, through dealing with the mountains and the valleys of our own heart and the things that get in the way of us welcoming him with the reception that he deserves. But it is in rehearsal. Yes, we are looking back to what happened 2,000 years ago, but in another sense, each year we are looking forward to the future visitation of Jesus Christ, at which time all preparations, it, it will be too late for preparations to, uh, to be undertaken. Now we prepare. Now we ready our hearts in anticipation of Jesus coming with all of his glory, coming in judgment, uh, coming to bring relief and comfort to his people, but also coming to bring judgment to those who have resisted and rejected him, who have, uh, who have not chosen not to listen to that 
that message that he's given us. So we've said that the scriptures invite us to hope in the God who seeks our comfort and to prepare for the God who secures our comfort. But the the passage moves from hope and preparation, uh, finally, to trust. It urges us to trust in the God who promises our comfort. But it does so in a very strange way, or at least I think it's a strange way, with a weird sermon that almost sounds like comedy. In verse 6, there's an appeal to cry out or speak. The problem is, Isaiah doesn't know what to say. So he says, what shall I cry? And he's told to deliver what sounds like the absolute worst sermon ever. Uh, You see it in verses 6 and 7. Point 1, people are like grass. Point 2, people's faithfulness is like a flower. Point 3, as you know, grass and flowers all wither and die. That's, that's a pretty, pretty bad message, right? Pretty, pretty terrible sermon on the face of it. And it's hard to see how that would be intended to bring comfort for the people, but it was. And as we step back and, and look at some of the details, it's clear how this was a message of comfort for the people. It's because the people Isaiah addressed weren't much different than you and me. We hear at Christmas, in particular, the promises of a God who seeks our comfort. We hear that God hasn't abandoned us, but seeks relationship with us. He hasn't given up on us. We hear words of God tenderly calling to us. We hear that God offers a double pardon for our sins, that God's grace is extravagant. And we hear the call to prepare our hearts to receive him through repentance. The problem is, we find it hard to believe those words. We find it hard to take them at face value, to trust them for what they, what they are. Because we hear them a little bit like the horse and buggy driver did in Chekhov's Lament. People have let us down in the past. Maybe religion has let you down in the past we have experienced promises made and promises broken. And it, every time we do that, it becomes harder to trust the next time. It becomes harder to believe. And so, trust doesn't come easily to us. That's where the grass and the flowers come in here. Verse 8 answers our suspicions, and it says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The message is that people may change change their minds, but the promises of God are unchanging. The message is that people may have let you down, but God's word is certain. It can be counted upon. The message is that People may have been unfaithful to you, but there is a God who is faithful. It's a statement of reassurance, but it's, it's also, on the other hand, a statement of warning. Because some of us hear the promises of God, and we don't take them too seriously because if we're honest, we've put our hopes on something else, or often someone else. 
We don't need the comfort of God because we think we're going to get all the comfort we need when we just find the right person. We think we're going to get all the comfort we need maybe from our spouse or from a friend or from a parent, from someone that we think we can trust, someone we think we can put our hopes in. And when we think, when we think those thoughts, we remember this kind of terrible sermon, uh, the three points in verses 6 and 7, we think, yeah, but God's warning me that people are like grass. Their faithfulness is like a flower. Flowers are beautiful, but you don't want to build a house on them. You, you don't want uh, to count on them being around 20 years down the road. That there is one who is certain. That there is a God who is faithful, and the word of God is some, something that we can stand upon. The word of God is to us a rock of certainty and confidence. And the promises of God contained in them are to us a strength and hope. God's Christmas promise is secure and eternal and we're invited to trust in it, to put our weight of confidence there instead of all of the other places that our world would tempt us to put our trust in. Now, I don't know whether you've ever found yourself Seeking comfort when you can't find a comforter. Uh, Looking for hope when everything felt kind of hopeless. If you haven't, chances are you probably will. Uh, Those days come to us. For me, one of those days came came on a Saturday, about 5 o'clock in the morning, and uh, I had set out earlier than I like to get up on a Saturday morning uh, to wait at the side of the road for, uh, in hopes that a gas station would open up. It was, a, it was a, a week after the triple disaster in Japan, and uh, one of the things that happens when, you, when you're in a natural disaster is that supply lines very quickly get cut off. Roads have been damaged by the earthquake and uh, trucks are not able to travel the way they did before. And so gas stations very quickly run out of gasoline. Uh, At the end of a a week in from the disaster, we had seen people lining up, long lineups, gas stations would open up for an hour or two and then they would say, We don't have any more gas. Maybe come back and try again tomorrow. I found myself uh, 5 o'clock in the morning thinking, I'll I'll wait for the gas station to open up. And I knew that I would have a a wait. I I ended up waiting uh, probably four hours that morning for the gas station to open up, and I finally did get uh, a little bit of gas and was able to continue. But it gave me an awful lot of time to think. As I sat there in the car, I didn't need to be convinced that people are like grass, that they're like flowers. Beautiful, but in situations like that, ultimately of little help. There wasn't anything that people could do. Uh, we didn't know whether we would, whether, whether 
we didn't know when the uh, food supplies would, would uh, finally check in. We didn't know what effect the radiation from uh, the nuclear plant disaster, what, what effect that was having on us or our children. We had so many unknowns and just wave upon wave of aftershocks from the, uh, the earthquake and every one of them floating around in terms of where, where the actual center was and how, how much of an impact it had on us locally. And in the midst of that, you feel how little power and little help people are. We're powerless. And without a comforter, there is no hope. I sat on the, in my car, with, parked on the road, and turned to the pages of Scripture. And as I read of and reminded myself of this God who is almighty and all-powerful, the God who, when he speaks, the mountains shake, the God who flings the stars into existence, it is only in the presence of someone who is that powerful that you find any sense of, of hope. And yet a mighty God, a mighty being of any kind on his own is not necessarily a comfort. It can actually be more fearful. And so when you read then in Scripture, not only of God's power, but of his great tenderness for his people. As you read of his great mercy, of his great kindness, of his faithfulness. It brought a sense of comfort and reassurance that no one and, no, and nothing could ultimately bring in the midst of that kind of tragedy. I don't know what circumstances you find yourself in as you prepare to welcome Christmas this year. I don't know how hard it is for you to hope, to trust in the promises that God gives at Christmas. But I want to encourage you that there is a God who seeks to bring comfort into our lives. A God who is so holy that he asks us to prepare. He recognizes that there are things in our lives that get in the way. We hear the call of John the Baptist to repent, to take to take those rocks and those obstacles that are in our heart and get in the way of the God who would otherwise help us and to face them head on and to turn from them. And having turned from them, we hear the, the appeal of Isaiah 40, the, the remembrance that everyone is like grass, their faithfulness is like the flowers. It's beautiful when you experience it, but ultimately you can't rest there. There is a secure hope that we have, and that hope is in the God who loves us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And I want to urge you as we prepare for Christmas, you've got all kinds of Christmas preparations planned. You have different things that you have on your heart and your mind. But as we prepare for Christmas, I want to urge you to not only uh, welcome it with 
the kind of reception that a king deserves, but to do so with the recognition that our Christmas is a rehearsal for a future day when Jesus will visit us in his glory. Let's turn to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the comfort that only you can provide. When we're tempted to put our hope in people instead of you, I pray that you would remind us that people are like flowers. Remind us that we're all like grass. We need a more secure hope. May we seek you for it. Thank you for Jesus who entered the wilderness of this world that first Christmas. We see in him the glory of your presence that you promised us. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who's looking for comfort. Would you comfort your people this morning? Would you speak tenderly to them and minister your hope? Would you help them to see the joy in your double helping of grace? For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.